This is a podcast from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship, a gathering of many nations who are one in Christ. We have the privilege of opening up the Word of God together to Matthew chapter 20. For those of you who don't have the dubious privilege of knowing me, my name is Bart Bile. I'm the pastor of this church. We've just finished a series in uh, 1 Peter, and before we turn to a new series in a few weeks, we have several, let's call them incidental messages um, that the Holy Spirit, I believe, has laid on my heart. And we're going to turn to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 20, verses 1 to 16, and read a rather odd parable. I preached a series on the parable several years ago in Canada, and this one did not make the list. It's considered one of the three most difficult of the two dozen or so parables that Jesus told. In uh, my Bible here, it's entitled The Parable of the Workers in the Vineyard, but it could easily be entitled The Parable of the Eccentric Employer or The Parable of Equal Wages for Unequal Work. And like so many of Jesus' parables, this one is strange, it is challenging, and it's a little bit upsetting, to be honest. So let's read these verses, and these are the words of Jesus telling this parable in Matthew chapter 20. Hear the word of the Lord. Jesus says, For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire workers for his vineyard. He agreed to pay them a denarius for the day and sent them into his vineyard. About nine in the morning, he went out and saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing. He told them, you also go, work in my vineyard, and I will pay you whatever is right. So they went. He went out again about noon and about three in the afternoon and did the same thing. About five in the afternoon, he went out and found still others standing around. He asked them, why have you been standing here all day long doing nothing? Because no one has hired us, they answered. He said to them, you also go and work in my vineyard. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the workers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last ones hired and going on to the first. The workers who were hired about five in the afternoon came and each received a denarius. So when those who are hired, came who were hired first, they expected to receive more. But each of them also received a denarius. When they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. Those who were hired last worked only one hour, they said. And you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the work and the heat of the day. But he answered one of them, I'm not being unfair to you, friend. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Take your pay and go. I want to give the one who was hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I am generous? So the last will be first and the first will be last. So here we are in the Gospel of Matthew, or Matthew chapter 20, well into this book. Jesus, at this stage, is on the road to Jerusalem, where he's going to be crucified and die. And he's been speaking to his disciples along the way about what true discipleship 
involves. And if you dip into chapter 19, you can see Peter telling Jesus, Jesus, we have left everything to follow you. We walked away from our boats. We left all of that behind. We recognize you as Lord and Messiah. We've left everything to follow you. And Jesus assures Peter, Peter, don't worry. No one who has left mothers or fathers or brothers or sisters or lands or anything is going to fail to receive a hundred times as much as they have left behind. And then immediately after that, Jesus has this parable, which to be honest, stands in tension against that which preceded it. Because here on the one hand, he's talking about the incredible reward that these 12 disciples are going to receive. But then he quickly says, don't get too puffed up about this. There is going to be total equality of all disciples when the final reckoning is made. These disciples were very concerned about just what they were going to get out of Jesus and the kingdom. Very concerned about who was going to sit at the right and the left, who was going to have the place of greatest honor and privilege. And here Jesus is challenging the 12 and all of us who think that we deserve more from God because we have worked harder and longer than others. And I know there are people here who have worked harder and longer than others. And this parable especially challenges you. In fact, I may safely say the better a Christian you are, the more you are going to dislike this parable. So let's go through this story. Here we are. It's obviously harvest time. It's early autumn, September, October. And there is a rush to harvest the grapes before time runs out. And presumably the owner of the vineyard has his own servants. He has his own family. But now it's a time in the season when he needs to hire some extra labor because the clock is ticking and he needs to get this harvest in. He needs to hire some extra help. And so we find him going again and again in his pickup truck down to the marketplace in the small country town to hire workers. And these people the owner is hiring are day laborers. People somehow or other had lost their family land or had only a small plot left and they had to hire themselves out to those who'd be willing to pay them enough to survive. And it was a precarious existence. Day laborers ranked just above slaves in the social status, but in fact slaves had a lot more security than day laborers did. Because at least as a slave, you knew at the end of the day, you were going to have your belly full. You would have a place, uh, a dry place to rest. As a day laborer, you had none of those securities. And every day was a day of anxiety about whether or not someone was going to hire you and give you enough to live on. And so this man goes out at the crack of dawn, six o'clock in the morning, he goes out to the marketplace and he finds some people standing around. And these are men clearly who are diligent and earnest. They themselves have gotten out of bed at the first chance so that they can have dibs on whoever might be hiring that day. They've got their work clothes on. They've got the gloves on their hands. They've got the hats on their heads. And these guys are ready to go to work. And the owner swiftly concludes negotiations with them. 
He offers to pay them a denarius a day worth 16 copper coins, and this was just standard market rate, exactly what a day laborer might, to ex- might expect to receive for a day's work. And they shake hands on that, and he sends them into his vineyard for 12 hours of work. Well, clearly more work needs to be done than the owner had expected, so he goes out again and again into the marketplace. He goes at 9 o'clock in the morning, and he sees people still standing around in the central square, in the shade, doing nothing. And so he says to them, look, I'll hire you as well, and don't worry, I'll pay you whatever is fair. No exact sum is settled on, but these workers no doubt would have assumed that somehow the the pay would be prorated, If we're doing three quarters of a day's work, we'll get about three quarters of a denarius. I'll pay you what's just. I'll pay you what's fair. Don't worry about it. So trusting the integrity of the landowner, they too go out in the vineyard. And he goes out again at noon and three in the afternoon, trip after trip, doing the same thing, bringing more and more workers to get the harvest done. And you can imagine that the quality of the workers is probably starting to go down. Those who go and hire first thing in the day get the strongest and most industrious-looking workers, and the pickings are starting to get pretty slim as the day goes on, and all that's left is people who have not yet been hired. And then, almost unbelievably, at 5 o'clock in the afternoon, an hour before sunset, the owner sets out for one last trip to the marketplace. And he finds that there are a few people still standing around. And he asks them, why have you guys been standing here in the marketplace not working? What's going on? And they say, well, fact is, no one has hired us yet. We have been passed over again and again and again. And surely by this time, these guys are at the bottom of the barrel. The least employable people, the very last people anyone would want to hire, are the only ones left. But even at 5 o'clock in the afternoon, as the day is almost over, these men have not yet gone home. As long as there is the slightest chance that someone might hire them for an hour or two and they can earn perhaps two or three copper coins, they're there because they are hungry and desperate. And he says, okay, you guys as well, go off to the vineyard. So here we are. We've had a 12-hour day. The harvest presumably has been gathered in. And the owner says to his foreman, his administrator, okay, time to pay everyone up. And in fact, this is completely in accordance with the law of Moses, which decreed, you can read about it in Deuteronomy 24, I believe, that if you hired workers, you had to pay them at the end of the day recognizing their vulnerable status. If they didn't get paid, they wouldn't eat. You couldn't withhold payment because of your own cash flow preferences. You pay these guys as soon as the work is done. And that's exactly what this righteous and just master is doing. So he calls these men in, these workers in, in reverse order of when they were hired. And here is where the parable starts to get a, a little weird, to be honest, starts to rebel against our own, the, the expectations of any sensible economic system. Because the ones who are hired last come forward expecting to receive, I suppose, one-tenth or one-twelfth of a denarius, just a copper coin or two. 
And to their surprise and delight, what they receive instead is this silver coin, this denarius, a full day's wage for a single hour's work. And our landlord is a very eccentric landlord indeed, throwing his money away so recklessly. And as these men leave the room, at the very back of the line are those who had been hired first, who had started at the crack of dawn. And when they realize that those who had only worked an hour received a denarius, their hopes shoot upward. And they think to themselves, wait a second. When we negotiated for a denarius, did he perhaps mean one denarius an hour? Because that seems to be the going rate. And they start rubbing their hands, anticipating we are going to get far more of a payday than we had ever expected. And then they arrive at the front of the line. And here's the reversal, as happens so often in Jesus' parables. They, too, are given a single denarius, the exact same payment as those who had only worked an hour. And then we start to get a little grumbling against the landowner, a discontented murmur spreads through the workers who had worked the whole day. These people had been up when the sun rose. They had gone straight to the vineyard without any delay. And as the day wore on, these men were working away in the vines, bent, backs bent, sweat pouring down, working hard for their wage. I don't know if any of you have done any agricultural work that, trust me, that is real work. And when I was in university, in my summers, I worked at a greenhouse. I worked long days and hard days, bent over, picking out weeds, replanting things. And those days felt very, very long indeed. And I would bicycle home just stinking and sweaty, aching, eager to climb into the shower, feeling like I had done more than a day's work for the very small amount I was making at the time. And to be honest, since that job, any job where you're sitting at a desk or in a coffee shop looking at a laptop, that's not, that's not really work compared to that kind of labor. These guys were working hard. And then, here these guys march in at 5 o'clock in the evening. The sun has almost set. The day is nice and cool. The sun is no longer baking down on anyone, causing exhaustion and headache. A nice, cool evening breeze has risen. And these guys pull up for the last hour in the darkness. They barely have time to uh, be told what the work involves. And the bell rings, and the day's over. Those workers haven't sweated at all. They can sniff their armpits and be like, I can wear this shirt tomorrow. It's completely clean. Their hands aren't dirty. They've barely even worked. And yet, these workers who barely worked at all are somehow getting the same amount that I am? This is not fair. This violates the principle of equal pay for equal work, a principle that every politician would 
eagerly defend. Equal pay for equal work. And now here we have a situation of equal pay for unequal work. And those who have been paid, worked 12 hours, get the same amount as those who have only worked one, worked one. And the grumbling and the discontent starts to arise. And one of these people, the shop steward of the union, so to speak, in fact, goes to the owner. And the owner defends himself from the accusations of these workers. And he says to them, he says to this person, I'm not being unfair to you, friend. That word friend is always an interesting one in Matthew's gospel because it's a polite word, but it's kind of a distancing word. The people who get called friend in Matthew are people who are being rebuked and challenged. No more so than Judas in the garden betraying Jesus, who is addressed as friend. And yet, this landowner is being far more polite to these day laborers, far below him in social status, than they are to him. He says, look, I'm not being unfair to you, friend. I gave you exactly what we agreed on. We met in the marketplace this morning. We negotiated one denarius. We shook hands on the deal. And now I'm giving you exactly what you had a right to expect. There's no exploitation going on. I'm not trying to cheat you or rip you off. You are receiving exact justice from me. You are getting the fair market rate. No injustice is happening. You agreed to work for this denarius. Take your pay and go. Why are you complaining? And then he adds this. I want to give the one who was hired the same as I gave you. I want to give. Here we are in a world of takers. Takers at the top of the social uh, levels, takers at the bottom. And here is a man who seems more interested in giving than in taking. I want to give. And I want to give to these people who barely earned their two copper coins. I want to give them 12 times more than they actually deserve. You know, it is a little strange that this landowner is going to the marketplace again and again and again, even up till 5 o'clock in the afternoon. It does not seem like a very efficient way to run a business, does it? But actually, the landowner seems more concerned about the survival of his workers than he does about his own economic self-interest. He cares more for them and caring for them than he does for himself. It's not so much that he needs these guys in his vineyard. They barely contributed anything. But he is concerned about those who are poor and at the margins of society, and he wants to make sure that these men have just as much to survive on as those who worked the whole day. Then he asks this question. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? No one would be complaining if I spent my own cash on a horse or a house. How dare you workers set yourselves up as a regulatory body 
over my philanthropy. I have every right to give a gift as I see fit. And you have no place coming in here and telling me what I can or cannot do with my own money. And then the landowner probes a little deeper and turns the accusation towards this worker. He asks this question. Are you envious because I am generous? Quite literally, he asks, is your eye evil because I am good? Why is it that my own goodness, my own generosity, my own disposition to give to those who do not deserve it, why is that bringing out the worst in you? Why is it stirring up envy and resentment? After all, these workers who didn't have the fortune to work the whole day, these workers are your friends and your neighbors. And surely you have spent hundreds of hours as day laborers wading in the marketplace together, working in other farms, sharing the stresses and difficulties of life on the margins. And now they've had this good fortune to receive a denarius for the day, and that is making you bitter and angry. What is wrong with your heart, the owner asks. Well, there is Jesus' story. And now he has a few words to say to us. The basic structure of the parable is pretty straightforward. The owner clearly represents God. The vineyard is the kingdom. And the laborers who enter at different times of the day are those disciples who have served God for longer or shorter periods. But what on earth is this parable trying to teach us? Here is the first uncomfortable truth. God will reward all his workers equally. God will reward all of his workers equally. The parable ends with this summing up statement from Jesus. So the last will be first and the first will be last. And that's a little difficult to connect to this parable because no one seems to be ending up last or first. They all got the same. And so at least in the context of this parable, the last and the first being first and last simply means that everyone is on ends at the same level. The last are first and the first are last because we're all on the same level in the end. There's solidarity in the kingdom. We all enter into the reward together. We're not separate. We're not competing against one another. We're not eyeing others for what they have or have not received. We enter in together. Now, I realize that this parable challenges the idea that there are differing levels of reward in the kingdom which most of us have probably heard at one time or another. There are differing degrees of reward in heaven, we've been taught. And of course, that teaching is very attractive to those of us, probably most of us, who believe that we deserve a little more at the hands of God from others for our labors and sacrifices. And of course, there are other texts in the Bible, and you're welcome to email them to me, which... Um, seem to suggest, but only incidentally, 
that there are differing degrees of reward in heaven. But this parable strongly challenges that idea. Because at the very center of the parable is this. Equal pay for unequal labor. It doesn't make sense, does it? It doesn't make sense to the natural man and our own fleshly calculations as we always try to introduce merit and deserts back into the picture in our relationship with God. The ultimate reward that Christians seek is not ruling over five cities or ten cities. It's not any of those things. It's God himself. Psalm 16, Lord, you alone are my portion and my cup. God, you are the inheritance that I seek. And in comparison with possessing God, which surely all the children of God possess him equally, everything else, all subsidiary rewards fall into insignificance. We all enjoy God equally together as the ultimate reward in the kingdom. And here Jesus is teaching this truth of radical egalitarianism, total equality in the kingdom of God. And that phrase, radical egalitarianism, may well give you the heebie-jeebies. If you've been raised like most of us are in worldly systems of earning and merit that love to place people above and below each other based on what they deserve. And this is not at all how the kingdom of God works. It's not about merit whatsoever. And perhaps this suggestion is disturbing you. Perhaps the idea of radical equality in the kingdom of God, all of us on the same level together, really bothers you. And it will probably bother you more the better and longer you have been a Christian, the more you have given up in the service of Jesus, the more you have sacrificed, the longer you have been faithful, the more this idea will tempt you to resentment. There was a story a few months ago about a millionaire in the United States, I think it was in Pennsylvania, and he took the whole graduating class of a college, I think it was the commencement speaker, and he announced, out of my wealth, I am forgiving all the student debt represented here. And if you know anything about the college system in the United States and what student debt means, it is an awful amount of money running up into the hundreds of thousands that people take decades even to pay off. And here in a stroke, this millionaire, this multimillionaire had wiped out the student debt of hundreds of students. You know, my first reaction on reading that article online was this. Man, that is really unfair to those students who worked multiple part-time jobs and saved and scrimped to pay their own way through college. Because if they worked hard and paid their own way, they have benefited nothing by this man's generosity. And here, on the other hand, are these other students with no foresight, no hard work, no diligence. They've been partying and goofing off with no thought to the future. And somehow, in the end, these people end up the same as the students who have worked hard. 
That ain't fair, man. That ain't fair. And that bothered me, as perhaps it bothered many of those students, because that's what grace does. It gives generously and overwhelmingly to those who do not deserve it. And our reaction to that grace will differ depending on whether or not we think of ourselves as the diligent, hardworking students or the lazy, goofing off, and undeserving students. There are people here who have been faithful to Jesus for years, decades even. And there are people here who have gone overseas to this strange and difficult country to serve Jesus and to share the gospel with people. And they have given up a lot for the kingdom of Jesus. And you may well feel that you deserve more from the Lord than those ordinary carnal Christians who are back home enjoying life, not making the sacrifices that you have made for Jesus. You are in a dangerous spiritual place if that kind of bitterness and resentment is working away in your heart. You know, there's a very telling phrase that these workers make, these workers who began in the day. In verse 12, they say, you have made them equal to us. They were angry because the landowner had made the others equal to them. He had brought the others, the undeserving others, up to the level that they had worked hard to achieve. And they resented, they deeply resented others being brought to the level of their own achievement and self-satisfaction. How we compare to other people is deeply motivating to all of us. There was a study done that asked people to compare, to make their preference on one of these two scenarios. Scenario one, you make $120,000 a year, but everyone around you is making $130,000. Option two, you are making $100,000 a year, but everyone around you is making 90000 Guess which option almost everyone chose? They would prefer to make less if others were below them. And we, oh man, in our hearts, we are eyeing those to the left and the right, elbowing our way up to the status that we feel we deserve in comparison to other people. People make huge efforts to rise in comparison with others. Looking forward to our high school reunion when we can compare notes and hopefully congratulate ourselves on how well we've done compared to our classmates. So much of human society and economics is based on this craving to rise above those around us. And here is this landowner, in a moment, wiping all of that out by giving these undeserving, late-in-the-day, 11th-hour workers rewards and status that they had not deserved. They were given something they did not deserve, and those who felt themselves deserving deeply resented that. Is your eye evil? Does the generosity of God, the lavish, 
eccentric, seemingly reckless and overflowing generosity of God to people who by no means deserve it? Does that create envy in your heart? How God treats you compared to others. The fact is, in the end, in the final reckoning, I can assure you, God will treat no man, no woman, no child unjustly. No one can complain in the end that they have received less than they've earned. Jesus tells another story in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 17, about workers who labor for the master. And at the end of the day, he comes home. And he asks the question, when they come home, is the master going to wait on them and congratulate them for their service? No. All these servants are going to say is this. We are just unworthy servants. We're just unprofitable servants. And in the end, all we have done was our duty. You will have no cause for complaints on the final day before Jesus. No cause for complaints. But be very careful on insisting on strict justice from God. Be very careful about insisting on strict justice from God. The wages of sin is death. The wages that we all deserve, the payment that is coming for all of us, eternal death at the hands of God. That's the wages system. The gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. See, God measures reward by grace and not by merit. God measures reward by grace and not by, by merit. And this is why all the workers are recompensed equally. Because it's not an economy of merit that is operating here at all. It's an economy of grace. And many times an economy of grace is going to look very backwards and upside down and inside out to those of us who are used to operating on merit and works. It's not at all how the kingdom of God works. There's only one man who can approach God with confidence based on personal merit, and that is Jesus the steward over all of God's house. The one man who can come before God and say, I am a worthy servant. I am a profitable servant. And I have a claim on you, Father. We have no claim upon God. You have no claim upon God. But Jesus Christ has a great and pressing claim upon his father. You can attempt to come before God with your meager and pitiful, paper-thin claims, but the far better choice is to abandon your own claim and latch on to Jesus' claim. Trust me, that is a far better way to operate, a much better system. Because God wants to give us far more than just a denarius, just a fair, balanced wage for our work for him in this life. He wants to give us the kingdom. He wants all of us to reign with Christ, his son, and feast 
with God forever and ever and ever. That's the system that God is operating on. You know, there's another parable that's actually very similar to this one, one that's far better known, and that, of course, is the parable of the prodigal son, really the parable of the father and the two sons. Because in that parable, of course, you have an older son, an older brother who's been slaving away in the fields, and he is calculating his wages. He has a mercenary mindset. He's thinking about what he can get out of his father, what he deserves. And when the younger son comes home, the son who has wasted and squandered half of the inheritance and is nevertheless received with open arms, a coat put on his back and a ring on his finger, the fattened calf slaughtered for him and songs of celebration rising in his honor, the older son is angry and resentful. He did not have the heart of his father. So the question for all of us this afternoon is this. Do we want to be servants or do we want to be sons? Do we really want to work in an economy of merit? Do we really want the kingdom to be about what we have earned and what we have done for God? Do we really want to forfeit the joy, the surprise, delight at receiving far more than we'd, we'd expected in exchange for the cold, small-hearted, begrudging, resentful, envious attitude that the earlier workers in the field had? You know, when we first came to Jesus, there was great delight and great surprise at the unexpected grace of God. And our danger is that the longer we follow Jesus and the more we sacrifice and the more we give for the kingdom, the further and further away that initial joy and grace recedes. And we become hard and grasping, mercenary, wage-calculating men and women. And God calls us to repent, to loosen our hand from what after all are very small claims upon God and open ourselves to receive the undeserved, bounteous, out of all proportion, gift of God. Because after all, the kingdom and the vineyard, it's not happening for God's benefit. He does not need any of us in his kingdom. He's going to the marketplace again and again, not for his own sake, but for our sake. Because God has compassion on those who are starving and weak and needy. And that's why he gives and gives and gives. Let's bow our heads and pray, shall we? That the Holy Spirit would change our hearts to be men and women who delight in God's strange economy of grace. Father God, we come before you and we ask you, first of all, to forgive us for our mean and grasping spirit at the uh, selfish and arrogant way that we have made demands upon you, that we have listed before you all the things we imagine we have done for you, all the ways that we tell ourselves that you are in our debt. 
Forgive us for our rudeness and for our arrogance before you, God. Forgive us for coming before you as those who have any kind of claim upon you, rather than hungry beggars with mouths open to receive from you. God, we thank you that you are a generous God, that you want to give. You want to give. May your Holy Spirit open our hearts to receive what you have to give, O Lord, to set aside wages and works and merits simply to receive. And all of it through the perfect work of Christ, your servant, your son, our perfect, unbegrudging, generous-hearted older brother. In his name we pray. Amen. This podcast was from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship. Learn more about us online at ticf-georgia.org. Thanks for listening.